um, we'd recap where we left off in terms of uh, the suite of communications um, that you might have or that you should have uh, for engaging with your alumni and uh, if you are um, wanting to get involved or are already involved in any form of fundraising. So in the last session, we talked about, um, in terms of engagement, we talked about um, having a printed alumni magazine, if that is within your budgetary means, um, that is a great thing to be able to produce. Um, having an electronic uh, e-newsletter, uh, having event invitations, whether that's letter or by postcard or electronically that you send out, um, different social media platforms that you might be in, uh, that you might have, and uh, whether you have an alumni app or portal, um, and we talked about um, Graduate as a commercial option that's very good, um, that actually uh, enables you to access your alumni through their own um, social media platforms, including LinkedIn. Um, and I also mentioned the example of Bergman College um, in Canberra, where they've had a very enterprising um, student who has actually created a beautiful alumni app for them, um, which is so far working very effectively and will be used as a major platform for driving their 50th anniversary celebrations next year. In terms of philanthropy, uh, we talked about the annual appeal um, and having both letter and electronic communications for that, um, a gifts and wills or bequests brochure, uh, and then very importantly, if you're doing any kind of fundraising, um, the importance uh, of having a donor impact report that you send to report on your fundraising activity. Um, so I'm going to ask uh, Vincent the question that I was intending to ask of last time, which is um, what do you think is the minimum suite of communications um, that colleges and other uh, educational institutions should aim for to initiate and develop effective engagement with their alumni? Good morning, everyone, um, and um, thanks, Chanel. Uh, I'll, I will start by acknowledging that Viv Chan from Trinity is here, and a lot of what I'm talking about is related to Trinity, so um, uh, feel free to jump in at any point, Viv. Um, so with a minimum suite, I think uh, I, I think the last time one of the things that I made sort of I kept saying was that really does depend on uh, where you're at and, and what your resources are and can be. Um, but I really would look at a combination of, you know, sort of something printed, something email, something social, um, and, and then start from there, uh, partly so that you can test out what works with your community and partly so that, um, you know, sort of you can um, provide a variety uh, to people. And, and, you know, the wonderful thing about some of the social platforms is that you can start organically and free and, and, and then graduate to something that is paid um, to reach more of your alumni. Um, but, um, you know, again, you know, it, it also depends on, on how much um, you have in the way of, you know, which types of contact details. So if you've got a lot of uh, addresses, then, you know, sort of, you know, start with a uh, a printed uh, flyer magazine type of, of article and then move from there. Um, but I, I do really, um, I do really think you want to play with the mix of what is printed and what is online. And Vincent, you very recently received your copy of the printed Trinity Alumni Magazine. Um, so last time we talked a little bit about, about engaging content and, and the type of um, articles that are of most interest to alumni. So would you like to speak to your experience of, yes. of receiving this magazine? So, um, so, so um, while I was at Trinity, um, 
Nicole Crook and I edited this for uh, a few issues. And so this is, um, it literally came in the mail um, a couple of days ago. Um, and it's called, this one's called the Big Ideas Issue. And it's actually a really, um, it's probably one of the, the best ones from where I sit as an alum um, from recent times. And you can take that back to the team, Viv. Um, it's got a real mix of, um, you know, content from the different parts of, um, of the organization and it's um so so you know there's um a young person who um is of an indigenous background that they're talking about is this australia's first prime minister uh there's an article on there are articles on various alumni so some of whom are really well known so ronnie Cheng, who's on the daily show in the united states rob sitch from working dog uh people like that brendan murphy the 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 chief who was the chief medical officer for for some time and now is the the health secretary so there's a lot of um, different articles and, and quite topical. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that Brendan Murphy's in it, you know, sort of brings in the fact that COVID's basically been a big part of our lives over the last little while. Um, and, the, and in touching on these big issues, the wonderful thing I found about this particular issue is that it's not preachy in tone. We talk about Indigenous, um, the place of Indigenous Australians in it, but we're not kind of, it's not a preachy, um, magazine. It still keeps the content light and engaging, um, but touches on those bigger issues. And so that's, um, that's a big thing. And then there is a, a several page um, spread on the 30th anniversary of the foundation program that I was a part of. Um, so it, it, um, it's, it's got a really lovely sweet uh, sort of mix of content and, and, um, and I do like getting it. So this is a once a year publication. Um, and it's been put together, um, this particular one was, uh, it's, it's edited by an internal person and then it has um, a, a, um, support from a, an agency in putting it together, plus various writers in and outside of the college. And so um, I can't imagine these things are inexpensive to put together. And, and I think one of the reasons when we were there, uh, this was um, a once a year thing and, and largely a local um, distribution um, was to to kind of maintain the printed magazine, um, but also make sure that we um, um, didn't sort of blow out the cost too far. Great, thank you, Vincent. Um, okay, so so obviously with this suite of communications, um, depending on on how many staff you have in your team, one of the really critically important things is being able to maximise your resources. And often we, we don't have specialist communications people who are able to support us and we need to look at all of the different ways that we can to, to communicate with alumni effectively uh, within the resources that we have. Um, so these are just some, um, these are some top tips uh, in terms of how you can do things quickly and effectively to make sure that you're communicating regularly. Um, and I'm gonna get Vincent to speak to the first one because he had a really great idea for this about in terms of using Google alerts to find alumni stories. We were talking about this yesterday, and um, so Chanel set up a Google alert for um, uh, Bergman College at the ANU, and um, and and you know, sort of, if you set it up with the name of your college, um, you may not get um, you may not get a lot of hits uh, alerts um, initially, particularly you know, as some of the more prominent alums don't typically talk about themselves in relation to. Um, their college necessarily, if they are associated with an educational institution, it's often the, the university that you're a part of. Um, but uh, one of the things I found is that, it, so there's a couple of things. One is that you can set up alerts for particular alumni. 
Um, so, um, you know, if you've got alumni that send in their news, add an alert in for them. Um, if you find out that an alum's become um, the CFO, the CEO, the managing director of something, put an, put an alert in for them. And then you'll gradually build up a, a very long list of alerts, but um, it's much more targeted, but you'll also get, um, you'll also get a lot more hits this way. Um, so, um, you know, sort of be creative about how you set these up. Um, certainly look for the, the uh, certainly look for the, the, the alerts of your actual college's name. But, but if you want to uh, find alumni stories, you might actually need to hone in on a list of sort of the top alumni that you're interested in hearing about. And, and when you get these alerts, this is a really great way. So, you know, last time we talked about the importance of sharing alumni stories. That's what alumni really want to read about. So when you get these Google alerts um, for, for people that are appearing in the news for different reasons, then you can very quickly and effectively include these links in your e-news um, without actually having to, uh, to interview and profile alumni. So that is a very labour-saving um, way of being able to profile alumni. Um, seeking content contributors amongst your alumni and residents, so um, depending on uh, the university that you're attached to, um, you will have current residents and you will have alumni who have been um, studying communications or, or doing journalism uh, or working uh, completing marketing qualification and so see if you can invite some of them to actually be guest contributors in your communications. Uh, and Vincent, I'm going to get you to speak to um, point number three with um, residents and students as ambassadors. Yeah, so, um, uh, and this is something that we do where I am now at Holmes Glen, but, um, you know, sort of various places that I've been a part of, including Trinity, we, we had residents and students um, act as social media advisor, uh, ambassadors. And so they can either, they can do a bunch of different things. Um, you know, sort of they can actually take over your Instagram or your a particular sort of part of your social media for a time. Um, or they can contribute posts that then someone official um, posts to the official uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, but one of the things I like about this is that that it really does get their friends engaging with your social media. Um, it feels a lot more direct, um, you know, whereas, you know, if, if um, you know, so-and-so college posted something about, you know, something, you know, the camp, here's a picture of campus today, you'll get a reaction to that. But students doing it, you know, sort of some of their friends who might not like and they may be residents themselves who might not like a post like that. We'll do it because Janie or Johnny has done it. Um, and so, you know, sort of, um, it really does bring in an extra thing. And if you've got a, a, a team of ambassadors, um, you know, sort of rotating amongst this, then you can, you can insert that kind of content throughout. Um, and I think one of the things that, that I've found alumni like is that they like seeing what current students are thinking. And again, this is a direct line to them. So um, I think you get that kind of, um, you know, the young and the old kind of engagement from it. It's a fantastic thing to do. Yeah, and, and also the, the personalization um, is, uh, is important um, because, uh, so, analytics for social media show that um, the personal posts on behalf of an organization are actually much more likely to get engaged than if it comes from the organization itself. So um, so being able to, to integrate residents um, and students into your social media posting um, is very effective for that. Um, and then of course there's using tools such as Hootsuite or Loomly. So, so these are tools that enable you to actually create your social media calendar across a number of platforms rather than having to create individual um, uh, 
posts for each thing and, and this can be a big time saver. Um, Hootsuite you can, or actually all of these kind of tools, you can access a free version and then there's increasingly um, there's subscriber versions that, that go up in terms of sophistication. Um, and I'd be, I'd be very keen if people could, in the um, chat section, if you're able to type in any um, particular calendar tools that you're actually using that you think are, are effective or that you've heard of being particularly effective. Um, the other thing you can do with social media, because social media can be incredibly time consuming, so it seems like a very easy thing to create um, posts, but when you actually get into it, it can be incredibly time consuming. Um, and, and it can also be challenging to think of things to post. So a great way around this is to actually come up with a framework for easy regular posting, which includes things like holidays and special occasions, um, and structures like Motivator Monday, Trivia Tuesday, Flashback Friday. So so um, Motivator Monday, there's obviously there's heaps and heaps of inspirational things on the internet that you can find and adapt um, and people respond really well to that kind of content. It, it gets a high level of engagement. Trivia Tuesday is an opportunity to actually ask questions, uh, like quiz type questions about your institution um, that engage people and, and that are kind of fun and gives you an opportunity to actually ask questions that you want people to know the answers to. Um, uh, and then Flashback Friday, sharing historic photos um, from your institution, again, is, gets very high engagement. Um, people love seeing historic photos. Um, using special events as photo opportunities. So throughout the year, you probably have a calendar of events um, that you've got the opportunity to take photos at. Um, all those, uh, you should be doing social media posts around all of those events and creating albums as much as possible um, because photos will get the highest level of engagement on your social media. Um, Here's a great thing with um, holidays and occasions that you know the dates of already. Uh, it means that you can actually pre-schedule and pre-create these posts uh, and then you can actually um, set timers for them so that they just automatically pop up. Uh, and here's an example from um, um, from a bunch of um, posts that we created at Swinburne University, um, particularly around December graduation, um, Christmas, Boxing Day and New Year's Eve. So we, we pre-created messages for all of these uh, and over that period of time we managed to reach 132,000 people. So that was quite an effective um, little calendar of events. Uh, so I'm going to move on to um, creating inspiring annual giving comms and this is actually a whole presentation in itself so I'm just going to touch very quickly on these things um, because if you are uh, if your residential college is in the situation where it's wanting to grow a fundraising program annual giving is really really important for actually creating your philanthropic culture so having regular annual asks um, that increase uh, the participation of of um, donors at low level giving um, is a really valuable way of building your philanthropic culture and developing your donor pipeline uh, because individuals that give regularly to your annual giving program, um, it's shown that like uh, that if they give seven times um, to your uh, to your annual giving, then they're more likely to become um, lifelong or major donors and they're also more likely to give to your bequest program. So having a regular ask every year is a great way of building that fundraising program. 
uh, when you're sending out your annual appeal letter. So some of the feedback that we had um, from colleges um, when we were planning this presentation was that um, they had like their foundation committee writing, they had volunteers writing the letters um, and it's really important that you actually approach this in a strategic way uh, and that you think carefully about your case for support as a basis for your annual appeal. So your case for support is all of the different elements that come together um, that, uh, that show the, um, the credibility of your um, institution for making an ask, um, the impact that donors can achieve through giving to your institution um, and the priority needs that you have and the urgency for people to give to those um, to give to those priority needs. So those are things that you have to you have to very clearly have identified as part of your value proposition to donors before you actually sit down to write your letter or, or have somebody write the letter for you. Um, so we want to, to make that point that, that thinking about your case for support in a strategic way is important before you get to the stage of actually writing your letter. Um, and then in terms of the content, uh, it's really important that, um, that when you're uh, creating your, your annual giving communications, that it has visionary, inspirational um, tone uh, and content, that you're talking about the impact beyond your institution. Um, so this is about thinking about your big picture impact in, the, um, in education and that you're preparing these young people for life beyond your residential college. Um, so, so you're, if you're, if you're creating bursaries or scholarships, um, then what you're asking people to give to is is the future of these young people and then how they um, connect with and influence the communities outside your institution. Um, going back to what we talked about in the in the first session in terms of tone um, about warm simple language um, it's not about sounding important or sophisticated you, you need to be connecting with them on a very personal level um, and it's about emphasizing the value of the individual rather than the importance of the institution so it's about the individual donor and the impact that they will make through your institution um, and uh, Tom Ahern who's a well-known um, American-based uh, uh, fundraising consultant and case writer talks about making donor the superhero. So you want them to feel like they are going to have a huge impact if they give to your uh, institution. Um, so Vincent, I'm just going to ask you what communication strategies work particularly for you in terms of inspiring participation in annual giving at Trinity? Um, so uh, this was some time ago, but in a sort of, uh, I think a lot of these um, really were the case. And so um, making sure uh, the language is again, sort of not preachy or, you know, sort of, you know, it was just direct and simple language that that really worked. Um, but also we featured students a lot. We featured um, uh, the college a lot. I think we talked at the, the last session about sort of blatantly being, um, you know, sort of uh, blatant appeals to nostalgia. And I think um, it is something that colleges have over, say, the rest of the university that they're part of, is that the the memories of college can be a lot more um, warm than, you know, going to lectures at the university. You had your you had your life at college, and so use that um, and emphasize the, the, the continuity, the benefit to life at college. Um, so we used a lot of students, you know, sort of the, the thank you sort of notes that had the T and the H and the A, um, you know, sort of, and then when you 
you do those sorts of things, you can then emphasize that, you know, sort of student holding the T received X scholarship, student holding the H received Y scholarship, and this is what it's meant to them. Um, and you would hope that that's a diverse group so that you can show different types of, of benefit to different groups. Um, and, and in doing that, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of really just play on the strengths of college, basically. So, you know, sort of we, we usually had students in the buildings sort of featured on these sorts of things. Um, it, it's nothing, nothing rocket science. It really was just making sure that you um, sort of appeal to why college meant something to the actual uh, person that you're sending the appeal note to. Great. Thank you, Vincent. Um, okay, so... Um, so the other important thing, and this is something that this is a mistake that organizations often make in terms of transparency. So donors really, or prospective donors really want to know how they can support you, uh, how that's going to be measured and how the impact is going to be measured. So um, in terms of um, when you're writing these communications, <clears throat> it's important that you set clear and realistic but aspirational goals. So you, so you want to give people um, something exciting to reach for, uh, but that's not out outside of the, the capacity of your um, prospective donor audience. Um, it's really important that you actually identify the gap and identify the impact. So if, for example, you're talking about bursaries and scholarships, um, you know, talk, talk about how many, talk about the, the students or the residents that you're not able to support, that you need, that you want to be able to support, um, and, and what your goal is for the number of bursaries or scholarships that you want to create, and, and how much that will be worth. Um, I, uh, you know, past I've donated to um, to scholarship funds, and and I've I've not received any information about um, how many like how many scholarships the institution actually created, how many students were supported, uh, and it and it becomes like this mystery thing that I I don't really know how my how my donation was used and how it benefited um, the the students. So that's something that prospective donors and donors really want to know. Um, also, harking back to this um, no-no of not giving your volunteers, not letting your volunteers write the letter, it's really important that, that you be professional in terms of the writing, the design, and the photography uh, in your fundraising communications. Um, and a big part of this is um, about trust and perceptions of accountability. So, um, accountability one of the, uh, or lack of accountability is one of the things that, that is a major turn off for donors. Um, and they will be observing the level of professionalism of your operation and making decisions about that, about how tight a ship you run in terms of um, how you fundraise and how you allocate that funding and how you report back on it. So a certain level of professionalism professionalism is important for uh, instilling trust um, in your potential donors. Um, and and uh, at Global Philanthropic, we run a lot of feasibility studies where we interview prospective donors, and this comes up as a theme. They say, mm, I, you know, I, I wanted to donate to them, but I just wasn't sure that they were actually running a, a, an effective fundraising operation. So that is important. Okay, so our, our top tips for this, again, um, picking someone you know to write to, so identifying one person, like when you're writing the letter, identifying one person really helps reduce the barriers in terms of communicating 
um, with potential donors in a way that's warm and personal and um, effective. Um, as Vincent said, illustrating impact with um, stories on your website. Um, stories are your most powerful tool in, in engaging both alumni and donors. Uh, and winning their support. Um, using beautiful photos of people with eyes front facing is really important. So try to avoid just using um, photos of, of buildings or landscape photos. Um, people are going to be, uh, photos of people are much more engaging in terms of getting people to give. Um, and then focusing on encouraging participation. Um, by including non-financial engagement elements. So in your appeal letter, you might um, you might talk about the priority needs and the things that you want people to support, but then you might actually invite them to send a message or, or send you some information that's that's not actually an ask. So for example, um, with a, a university appeal I worked on this year, we added an engagement element where we asked people to send messages of support to students who were struggling um, through the pandemic. And this is a way of getting people to actually engage with you, um, uh, which helps build their relationship and their affinity. Uh, and, and eventually, further down the line, when they've received a few of these communications, may actually encourage them to give um, and, and give at increasing levels. Um, so, uh, so, Vincent, you also had an interesting strategy for that in terms of um, targeting uh, non-donor non segment with engagement activities. Yeah, so um, I do like the idea of fostering participation that is non-financial, but I like a very tight annual giving letter that's focused on the ask. And so one of the things we did when we wanted, um, we identified a group of people um, at the time uh, who we wanted to engage in other ways. And so they were generally non-donors, took them out of the, the, the list um, and sent them a separate ask that was about participation in non-financial ways. And so we actually invited them to be um, part of a, a mentoring, speed mentoring activity that we had at the time. Um, there were three or four opportunities. One was a kind of speed mentoring thing, you know, in the dining hall. Um, another was a kind of speaking opportunity organized by the students um, uh, on careers. And, and again, that harks back to the idea that most of our alumni figured that they can contribute in that career sort of way. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of things like that, so that, that you know, sort of it was um, direct, uh, direct participation with students. Um, and and we, got a, we got a full list of participation from that, but we took them, in our case, we took them out of, of the list in order to create a separate ask so that, again, the ask was a focused thing. Would you participate in this? Cool. Great. Thanks, Vincent. Um, Okay, so now moving on to uh, to one of my favorite topics, which is print versus electronic. Um, and this quote from Australia Post, who of course have a vested interest in this, but the letterbox still remains an uncluttered medium. So I'm sure that you're all aware of just how, how bombarded we are with electronic messaging uh, and, uh, and emails. And uh, it's certainly true that um, email is, you know, one of the fastest and most cost-efficient ways to communicate with your stakeholder audience. Um, but in terms of really getting cut through for your audience, um, the letterbox is still the best way uh, to do that for your for your most important communications. So um, <clears throat> Accenture did a, a big study for um, 
uh, Australia Post in 2015, um, and that's a, a link to the report so that you can actually re read that yourselves in detail and see what the findings were. Um, but the fact is that um, that people still tend to uh, have much higher or 100% of them are going are gonna to read their mail and 81% um, of them will actually read their mail immediately um, versus 63% uh, for email, um, which was revealed in this study. Um, the other thing is that, that we don't necessarily think about, but mail actually engages multiple senses uh, and anything that involves multiple senses is much more memorable um, and much more impactful. Uh, so with email, you just get it with your eyes. With um, with postal mail, you've got the tactile experience, um, and if you're doing if you want to do something really fancy, you've got opportunities to do um, to do other things that um, that engage other senses. But um, studies, uh, multiple studies show that people have a much higher recollection for things that they read in uh, printed communications than electronic communications, and that's also true for studies um, that have been done with um, alumni in terms of communications they receive from universities. Um, also in this, uh, this study by Accenture, they found that mail, actually post mail, makes people feel more valued. So you've, you've put more effort into it if you're actually sending them a postal communication than if you're sending an email. So people feel more valued as a result of that. Um, mail, postal mail is also more trusted for important communications. So um, people prefer, often prefer to receive um, their most significant pieces of communication as actual um, printed uh, printed communications because uh, it has a higher level of um, um, accountability, I guess, attached to it than electronic communications. And interestingly, the power of postal mail still resonates with digital natives. So even the generation, uh, the generations that have grown up with um, uh, electronic saturation, um, they still respond much more in a much more positive way towards actual um, printed communications and postal mail. The other um, important thing in terms of fundraising is that postal communication still drives the highest results in annual giving. So even if the person receives uh, a postal communication and then donates online, it's the postal commu communication or the printed communication that has actually driven that behavior. Um, online giving and people giving through social media and giving to email is obviously increasing, um, but, but postal communications still have, drive the highest results. Um, and printed communications also have the, the greatest longevity. And I noticed this when I was um, working at universities where sometimes we would receive donation forms from donors that we'd sent out a year earlier. So they'd had that donation form sitting somewhere in their house for a year and then thinking, you know, at some point I'm going to get around to donating. And then they finally sat down and they made the donation. Um, when you send an, an, uh, an email um, ask for uh, your annual giving, um, it very quickly disappears below the radar of the individual. So if they're not taking immediate action and they think that they'll follow it up later, as I'm sure you guys all know, um, often it just it completely you know, falls off the radar. Um, and printed communications are still preferred by older alumni who are in your key demographic for annual giving um, and preferred by donors as a way of making them feel special and valued um, by the organisation.
The other really important thing about having printed communications, and this goes back to what Vincent was saying before about the importance of alternating your printed and electronic communications, is that it actually helps to keep your data clean. So 20% of people move um, house each year, uh, but also 20% of people actually change their work email address. So if you're not regularly alternating postal mail with electronic mail, um, you're going to have a higher rate of attrition in your um, in your clean data, uh, and you can see it. And you know when we do assessments of um, institutional databases where they've only been doing email communication, we know that a high proportion of their um, data is going to be out of date, and that they need to do some serious work on cleaning it. Um, the other thing is that you can't tell when an email address hasn't been effective, so you don't necessarily get um, hard or soft bounces for individuals where a, um, where a, a uh, an, e uh, an electronic gate has stopped your email getting through. So people may think that they have an up-to-date email address with you, um, but your messages aren't actually reaching them. Um, so Vincent, just on the topic of um, print versus electronic, I wanted to ask you, what was your actual reader experience like uh, with receiving the, the printed Trinity magazine? I like receiving this. <laughs> um, the thing about the thing that you said earlier about this being tactile and uh, you know it it does um, mean more. Like I I I have a stronger recollection of what I see in this, and I can pick up. So I mean, the in the last session I mentioned sort of you can recycle articles and pop them into the email so that people can catch it in different ways. Um, and you know, if I've read something like very briefly in an email, but you know, sort of, I might actually delve into it a little bit just because I see the same picture um, here in the magazine. There's something quite wonderful about receiving this. It does feel more special. I feel, um, I really enjoy receiving my magazines. Um, and that's partly um, because I'm in the industry, but mainly because as an alum, I feel like I like getting it. Um, so that's that's important to me. And I do feel, um, you know, it's 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 in my house. I like opening it within the week. I get it, um, and I it, sort of I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a one-time sit-down reader, um, but it it's there, and I will pick it up occasionally until I get through most of it, um, or at least have leafed through the bits that mean something to me. Um, and in this particular one, because of the way that the 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 content has been sort of applied. Um, I feel like I've, you know, I've, I've read a lot of it already and I feel like I'm going to get into um, most of it. And so, you know, sort of you'll get those issues where, um, um, you know, you'll get more readership in that just because of the way that the, the content has come together. Um, but that, that for me is, is um, like I, I get a, a lot of emails um, and Trinity sends me emails and I, I you know, they're not like delete, they're like, you know, sort of they're there, but they do fade away because emails are like, if I get it during the day, um, you know, and there, there's research on the times that you should be sending emails, posting posts. Um, if I get it during the day, I might note that I've got it. You know, if I've had time to click it open, that's one thing. Um, but I, you know, sort of typically, if it comes into your personal email, it goes into a promotions box now. So you may not even really see it. And I might just note that something has come through from Trinity, but not really read it. Um, you know, the, the print really does have a different experience. And I say that as someone who's not in, I hope, the category of older donor or alumni. Thanks, Vincent. Um, 
Okay, so how often should we communicate? Um, so there's, there's often a reticence about communicating because you think, oh no, they, you know, we don't want to communicate too much because they'll get sick of hearing from us. Um, but um, but the, the danger of that is then that you don't communicate enough. And so, I mean, the reasons that you're communicating are that you want to stay top of mind with your alumni and donors and, and the rest of your community. Um, and you also, it's about um, continuing to actually build your relationship with them uh, and and getting them to come closer to the institution um, over time. The other thing that you want to make sure is that you're actually ensuring a high ratio of pure engagement to asks. So there's nothing worse than alumni saying, the only thing I ever get from my alma mater is fundraising asks. Um, so you want to make sure that you're sending them a reasonable amount, probably at least probably 80% of your communications to them should actually be uh, just about engaging them and, and not making an ask or only including a soft ask. Um, so our top tips for um, for both um, alternating, uh, both print versus electronic, and how often you should communicate. Um, so again, alternating your electronic and communications. Um, uh, probably um, you want to be sending at least. Um, one to two postal communications a year, whether that's uh, a type, an invitation or a printed magazine or um, some other uh, form of engagement, but you want to make sure that you're doing that as, as a bare minimum. Um, one thing that you can, uh, if you've got budget constraints and you, you want to make sure that everybody's getting your event invitations, one thing you can do is actually send a hard copy calendar of your events at the start of the year uh, for alumni to actually pre-register. So they can go through your calendar of events and, and tick the ones that they're interested in, send that back to you, uh, and then you can send them more personalised invitations at the time that those events are coming up. Obviously, you have to know at that point what your event calendar is actually going to be, um, which is sometimes a challenge, but a good habit to get into. Um, definitely, definitely make sure that you're always sending reminders uh, for calls to action. So it's very easy for us to send out um, an invitation to an event and then think that we've done, you know, that we've we've fulfilled the brief of informing them about the event. But the fact is that, uh, you know, people are getting lots of messages about lots of things. Uh, and unless you, you send people regular reminders that things are coming up, um, then they're not going to take action. So they need the prompts. Um, and the same with your annual giving. So once you send your annual giving letter out, um, you can you can do electronic reminders. Um, I usually advocate doing a one week one if it's a tax time appeal, doing a one week reminder and and doing even doing a twenty four hour reminder um, that the the end of the financial year is coming up, and if they want to make a tax deductible donation, because often people want to actually make a donation, but they need the prompt to actually take the action. So don't think that you're going to upset people with that. Um, and always, always, always send your annual appeal as a printed letter to your key segments. So the, the people, the segments that are the most likely to give, um, which are your current existing donors um, and your alumni who are aged 55 plus. And if you don't have the budget to um, to cover those segments, then then make sure that you're um, that you're covering as much of the segment as you can, um, and and then emailing the others. Um, so, uh, Vincent, I was just going to ask you, um, you, you mentioned before about how often Trinity contacts you, so how do you actually feel about the level of contact that you get from Trinity? Um, 
very fond of the place. So, um, you know, sort of they can send me as much as they like. Um, but, you know, sort of it, it is, um, it's appropriate. Like from where I sit from a professional standpoint, I, you know, sort of I get the, um, you know, sort of uh, right around now is when we would be receiving things like, you know, sort of the, the Christmas, you know, sort of come to carols and stuff all a bit different in the year of COVID. But, um, you know, sort of uh, there, there's almost a calendar that I expect as a member of the community to see, you know, sort of because I know that carols will be around, you know, sort of in the next, you know, sort of four weeks in a normal year. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, sort of there's, there's, there's a kind of, um, you know, if, if you've honed a, a calendar of events with your community, if you've honed a, a set of expectations with them about what they're going to receive, um, you know, sort of you, and, and this is where that testing comes in about, you know, sort of AB testing all of your communications as you go, you know, sort of what kind of things do they want? How often um, you'll come to a place where, you know, sort of by and large, you've, you've honed it into a place that works. Um, people will generally be happy to, you know, hear from you. And it's just, you know, sort of, again, it's, you know, is there too much of one thing? Is there, you know, test that all along the way, um, you know, by kind of going again, you know, sort of, I've got a thousand of these guys, a thousand of those guys, let me see what these two different things look like by doing that. It takes a little bit more effort, but I've found that as we've done that, uh, and we did this in particular when I was at Business and Economics, we found that it was really useful to kind of test different kinds of comms. And we'd send emails out that had slightly different content and we get the reports back and the behavior by and large is is very particular to those two different emails so so test it out and you'll get a uh, i think you'll get to a place where um um you know the 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 folks that you're sending this to are happy to hear from you and that's certainly the case with me Okay, so uh, so further to that topic, the power of segmentation. So segmentation is where you actually divide your alumni audience into specific groups of, um, of commonality, uh, which enables you to speak to their actual lived experience. Um, it enables you to, to use much more specific uh, and inclusive language for, for those particular groups. Uh, and it enables you to actually acknowledge their historical perspectives and and their connection to your institution because for most of you your institution will actually have a very long history and the identity of the institution may have changed over time so for example when I was um, working at the University of Canterbury the University of Canterbury had gone through three name changes um, and so alumni from each of those three different periods uh, thought of the university in a, in a slightly different way so so knowing how your um, particular alumni audience that you're talking to actually conceptualize um, your institution is very important and how you communicate with them in the language that you use. And when you do this, when you use segmentation and actually speak to people's specific lived experience, it increases the likelihood of their responsiveness. Um, the important thing though to keep in mind is that there are, uh, you can segment too much. So there are diminishing returns uh, in terms of um, the segmentation that you apply. So there's a, there's a fine line between having enough segments to, to drive responsiveness and having too many segments. And I'm going to invite Vincent to share his experience of that, um, which he's a really great example from Trinity. So when I when I took over, um, so we, um, my area ran the annual giving for for some time, um, and it still does in that sense. Um, when I took over, um, we had um, 
gone into a quite sort of deep segmentation. There were over 20 types of, of segments in our annual giving at the time. And there were useful and valid reasons for it to have grown to that. I think there was an idea at the time that you could grow in sophistication by targeting those segments more um, you know, in, in, in increasingly detailed ways. Um, and when I took over, we brought that right back to, it was about nine by the time I took over. Um, and so to go from 26 to nine, I think part of the reason that we did that was that as we found, uh, you know, sort of going into deeper, seg uh, deeper sort of segmentation, I think we found that it, it was kind of trying to be too specific, but actually getting it a, a bit incorrect. So we were, I think we were kind of past the point where you know, sort of if we were right at about 15 segments, we were past the point when we passed 20, particularly for the size of the operation that we had. Um, I, I have this thought that, you know, sort of if you have 10,000 alumni, the, the ideal number of segments is 10,000. You really want to be able to target your communication specifically to Joe or Mary or, or whomever you're talking to, but you've got to balance that with um, the, the operational capability. And so bringing it back to nine meant that we weren't spending you know, masses, you know, sort of, of time, you know, lots of onerous sort of work to make sure that we were getting the, the specific segment addressed correctly in the text of the letter. Um, you know, we brought it back a little bit. It was things like, you know, sort of, um, you know, resident alums, international folks, parents, um, quite simple categories in one sense. But again, by getting it um, making it a bit more general from something a bit more specific, we got it right at least. Um, and we didn't, um, you know, we you know, sort of, you, we didn't misaddress you in that sense. And so, you know, sort of, there was a lot of effort that went into that was that eventually became incorrect. Um, so, so pull it back when you need to. Okay, uh, and an example actually from Swinburne, um, we discovered quite by accident that our international alumni weren't actually opening our alumni e-news at the same rate as our domestic alumni. Um, and so we then made a decision that we would that we would do two versions of our e-news uh, and our international version of the e-news put all of the international news at the top. Um, so that it was very clearly a communication for them. Uh, and once we did that, we noticed that the opening rate um, uh, shot up again. So this is, this is something where paying attention to your data is very valuable um, because your data will tell you a lot of stories uh, and, and throw up a lot of patterns about how your alumni are engaging with your communications. Uh, um, Chanel, so can, I, can I just jump in? Tanya's pointed out there's a difference between segmenting and personalization, and I do want to chime in. That is absolutely the case. If you're sending out 10,000 letters, they should absolutely be personalized. Um, where I'm talking about that segmentation difference was when we started going into, uh, you know, sort of alumni who are also parents, you know, that sort of thing, and we categorized very, very we categorize them into quite sort of detailed segments. Whereas I think, you know, sort of pulling it back and just saying, we're going to treat you like a, a parent or we're going to treat you like a, an alum in this case was just a bit more valuable than trying to go into a really honed in category. Um, every letter was still personalized, but it was, yeah. um, it wasn't necessary to go into that, that real detail. And we achieved uh, in, at the time, the two highest raising years that we had um, in pulling back. Yeah, great. Yeah. And so in terms of annual giving, here are, here are some um, segments that you, that you would, might consider including in your, um, in your strategy, uh, which helps um, just 
make the language very relevant um, to those particular groups of people. Um, and so major donors, obviously, you're wanting to make them feel um, extra special. Current donors, it's about acknowledging the fact that they have been generously given to your institution as well. Lapsed donors, you want to be acknowledging that they were past supporters uh, and, and that, that was um, valued by your institution and helped to prompt them to um, uh, renew their giving. Um, board members are a special VIP group that you, that you want to be talking to in a particular way. Um, and the non-donor older alumni, so I've included them there because they're the people that you that you need to be sending a letter to. So you want to be sending them a letter to, to help convert them into donors. Um, and then obviously you have different messaging for staff, for parents, um, for your international alumni. You may or may not decide to include your young alumni as a giving segment. Um, you want to make sure that you've done lots of engagement with them <clears throat> um, while they're current residents or students before you actually um, make an ask of them. Okay, um, in terms of what to measure, uh, Vision 6, and that's a hyperlink in the presentation again, so you can you can click on that. Um, they do a very useful annual marketing metrics report where they actually show opening rates and click-through rates by industry, uh, generally by industry and by specific sector. Um, and this year, interestingly, so it's 37%, around 37% for both education and all industries um, for opening rate and around 7 to 8% for all industries in education in terms of click rates, which is actually higher um, this year and a reflection that people have been sitting at home um, and had more time to actually open and read their emails because usually it's sitting around about 34%. So those are benchmarks that, that you want to aim for in terms of um, your email opening rates. You also want to be keeping tabs on your unsubscribes uh, as a measure of um, how effective your communications are. Um, and then uh, if, if once you get past those basic metrics, um, looking at things like, and this is also dependent on, on how you're able to capture this in your database so that you can track it on an annual basis, but how many replies are you actually receiving? How, how much two-way engagement are you driving? Um, how many update forms are you receiving each year from alumni updating their contact details or sending you their news? Um, how many apologies are you receiving to event invitations? Like, do people actually care enough about your events to let you know that they're not able to make it and send you a message? So these are all useful indicators that your communications are working. Um, but you only want to worry about these if you can actually track them easily in your, uh, in your database. Um, so top tips, uh, as Vincent's already said, really important that you use the first name and last name for your email. So this is to increase your email opening rates. Um, if you use first name and last name in the two field, that increases the opening rates. Um, don't default to using alumni e-news as your subject line every time because people will stop reading it. Um, you want to make sure that you, that you put teasers in your subject line to, to encourage opening rates. Um, email subject lines with thank you actually have an opening rate twice as high as any other subject line. So, um, so thank you messages get uh, a higher level of opening. Uh, and similarly, subject lines using emojis far outperform other subject lines. So that goes back to the importance of having this warm personal tone. Emojis obviously are, are much more informal and, and more personal. Um, okay. Oh, 
I thought we were I, I thought we were going to have to um, cut our presentation short again, but um, we are actually on our last section, which is last tips for, an, for encouraging two-way engagement. Um, and Vincent, uh, I'm going to get you to talk to the, the top point there about all, always asking questions. Yeah, um, so I think the the basic point about encouraging two-way communications uh, and engagement in, in social media, for example, is, is to simply ask for it, you know, sort of, you know, sort of what do you think of, um, you know, sort of if you post something, um, you know, making the comment that it's, it's a post about this is a, is a far less effective way of driving um, real you know, sort of like an actual engagement than, than actually saying, here's a photo of so-and-so, do you remember it? Um, you know, sort of like, here's a photo of campus from 1950. You know, what are your memories from when you were there? You know, that, that sort of stuff, um, you know, sort of you, you have to ask for engagement almost to get it. People will casually like something if you post a photo without that, but calling them to an act, um, you know, sort of actually drives it. And, and particularly when you can kind of, um, combine something that is emotive with saying, you know, what do you feel? What do you want to do? Can you do? Um, you know, that sort of stuff. If you if you ask for engagement, you typically will get it. You're more likely to get it. It's as yeah. simple as that. <laughs> yeah, and and the more that you invite people to do that, the more you break down the you know the barriers between you and your alumni, and and create that sense of strong connection. Um, you do actually, you do actually have to do that in a way that is, um, if you suddenly you know start posting where you kind of go, what do you think of this? People will be like, oh, you know, you need to have that as a constant thing. It's a habit rather than. Um, a sudden kind of, oh, we want engagement now, just make sure they're all, and, and that is, you know, if you're not doing it, then you do need to do that. But initially you'll start to see why are they, you know, it'll be a very tentative thing. So, you know, sort of, it has to be a habit in order for people to feel comfortable with that. That has to be the persona you project on social. It's, it's this approachable, we constantly ask for engagement type of post. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and polls and surveys, obviously you can do that on social media as well. It's another effective way of inviting them to participate. Um, uh, resident ambassadors and influencers, so we've already talked about that uh, in terms of having your, um, your, your residents and your alumni or your students as social media ambassadors for you. Um, in your e-news, the more that you can include links to event photo albums, um, that really helps increase your opening rate and your level of engagement. Um, and you can also do things like running competitions and prizes that are sponsored by alumni. So um, when I was at Swinburne, we had uh, this great um, alumnus who was uh, um, in a senior position with the um, with one of the theatres, and and he would often give us um, tickets to give away to concerts or performances, and so we were able to run that regularly in our alumni news. It was a great way of building a relationship with him, and and also um, getting alumni actively participating with us. Um, and then obviously encouraging alumni to send you their class news, uh, and um, and and being able to publish those in some format somewhere. Um, class notes are very popular. Uh, with the readers and the people sending the information in. Okay, so I think we have to quickly go to questions. Um, I don't know if there are, if there are questions that have come in, Sheila. Uh, yes, uh, we'll do this really quick because um, we, we need to hand over to Mandy as well. Uh, Ralph said, what's the view on investing in more premium packs for key donor groups? 
I know it's common practice at charities, but wondered if anyone does it at college. Um, and I don't know if anyone wants to reply to that. Um, or do you want me to go on to the next question? I'm, I'm happy to, to, to have a stab at this. So it wasn't the practice when I was at Trinity, um, but one of the things that um, I've, when, when I was at the University of Melbourne, one of the things that, that was a, a, a definite trend, and I see this with the, the, the annual giving packs that come in from Monash and other places, is that the, the, the pack starting to look like charity pack. Um, uh, but I think what's what universities have held off on is the thing where you get the stickers and the extra bits. They they're they're more like charity packs in the sense that they've got um, you know those longer letters, those appeals that are, are 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 more honed, more personal. They have the student who's benefited speaking directly to you. Um, so there's a definite sort of shift I think towards moving down that charity writing sort of style. Um, but but I, I yeah. I think if we had done this at Trinity, there would have been a little bit of a, you know, we're, we're, you know, you don't want to cheapen your brand in that sense. And so you've got to really balance it with what people will think. And if you want to move them down that line, um, you've, you've got to do that very carefully. So I, I do a bit of research, obviously. Um, but, you know, sort of, um, I, I've definitely noticed the way that the writing has come is a little bit more like the charities have done. Um, the language is simpler. It's, um, a lot more underlining and that kind of direct appeal stuff. Um, and that obviously takes a bit more effort. Nick, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I'm just happy to make a couple of quick comments here. Uh, Ralph, listen, that's a very good question. I think what you can do, again, if you think a bit about your segmentation and your audiences, you can try it uh, with certain segments, at least test it and, and see how it goes. Uh, one thing we did do when I was at the University of Sydney uh, was that we actually tried premium packages uh, quite successfully with our uh, bequest prospects and our bequest segment. Uh, so that did work quite well, uh, probably because that was an older age group uh, and uh, putting along a, uh, a premium package together for them actually uh, ended up working quite well in terms of turning over um, um, potential bequesters into confirmed bequesters. And I think that that was useful from, from our standpoint. Uh, we did try it as part of our annual giving program. Uh, the results were positive, but we didn't, I wouldn't say we did it um, repeatedly. And I think you have to do it, uh, I think you have to do it sporadically to, uh, to be able to get the, the maximum impact uh, out of it. So I wouldn't necessarily make it a, a standard part of my annual giving program each and every, uh, with each and every mail out. But, uh, but you can try it with certain segments and, and uh, looking at, uh, at what the offer is. And again, connecting them back to the institution. So it can't, it's not just simply about offering a premium package, uh, a premium, but about how that premium actually connects them back to uh, what it is you're doing at the, uh, at the college. Thank you, Nick. Um, we might uh, leave Chelsea's question and take it offline, if that's okay, um, because I'm aware that everybody is uh, very busy. Um, Mandy, did you want to say something? Yes, I did. Thank you so much. Um, hello, everybody. And for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Mandy McFarland, and I'm a board member of Educate Plus. And part of my portfolio this year was to initiate a strategy of engaging all our members that were in residential colleges. So this webinar is the last of four we've done this year um, and 
our partnership with Global Philanthropic has just been amazing. So I just wanted to thank um, Nick, Chanel, and Vincent today for the, or the last two um, webinars. It's been wonderful. And I think the beauty of that is that we've shared really good practice, best practice. We've, we've got a lot of engagement and questions and suggestions from people post um, the webinars. We plan to hold one more next year, which will be a, a focused on leadership. And, um, and that's all aspects of leadership, whether it's best practice or whether it's the success stories, the opportunities, the challenges. And for many small organizations, it is a tricky, it's a tricky area, whether you're an aspiring leader or an existing leader, um, there's going to be going to cover all of that off and that'll be early in the new year. And I'd really encourage you to get your college leadership engaged in that webinar, because I think it's really important that we hear from both sides of, of the coin and, and see how we can work together more effectively um, as advancement staff. Um, lastly, I just wanted to mention that it, uh, the global, as I said, have gone up and beyond in terms of a partnership with us and we're so grateful so thank you they are, they've extended their, their support by offering something called um, 30 virtual which is a free 30 minute consult consultation with you as a member um, just to have a chat with them about anything that you feel they could potentially help you with or advise you um, with so you can either reach out to Chanel or you can go to our educate plus website there's a there's a there's a tab called marketplace and all the information will be um, available there. So guys, firstly, thank you so much. We really appreciate your, your um, involvement. Secondly, I'd really like to um, thank Sheila. Um, Sheila had put all these webinars together and I think I was asking her how many she's done this year and I think it's in excess of 100 and I, I don't know, maybe that's underplaying it, but you know, for every webinar, there's so much work that goes into it. It's all the content, it's all the Zoom links, it's the emails, it's the, the communication afterwards. So Sheila, you've done a phenomenal job and you've really, yeah, it's been absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much to you and to the team. It's fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> pleasure. Um, I'd then also like to really thank all the people who participated so much. It's been wonderful to get that engagement. Thank you so much for your suggestions, your follow-up after the sessions. Um, this whole strategy was really um, begun to look at how we can create a benchmarking study for residential colleges, and we're leading into that next year. And out of that grew all this engagement around um, best practice and a whole range of, of resources. So. Um, we're excited about it. We feel we've made really good inroads this year. Um, we are hosting, uh, Educate Plus is hosting an international conference next year. Um, COVID has made us have plan A, B, C, D and E in relation to how we're going to deliver that conference. And um, we really would like to do some face-to-face -face component um, if, if travel is allowed, but we'll have a very big online presence as well. So people who can't get to the conference, we really will be providing something very good for you. Um, Sheila will be sending out the link to the conference sign up um, after this session. We have decided that if your booking needs to be cancelled for any reason, you'll be fully refunded. So I would really encourage you, if you do have some um, financial resource available this year, to book your spot because we've had so much interest and obviously people are desperate to get together again in a face-to-face um, space. So um, I really encourage you that the, the program is fantastic and we'd love to see everybody there. So we'll, and please reach out to Sheila if you have any questions around the conference because she is, is doing the comms around that. And then lastly, I just wanted to wish you all a really happy 
peaceful, regenerative, regenerative um, Christmas and summer holiday. I think everybody has found this year incredibly long, but it's gone very quickly. So we'll regroup in 2021 with a different landscape, no doubt, um, hopefully. And um, we look forward to seeing you all. And, and please just stay in touch, give us ideas and suggestions, because this is about you and how we can support you. So thank you, everybody, so much. It's been an amazing experience this year. Thank you, everyone. See you all at the next webinar. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye.